0: Congregation, this morning we considered that the fruit of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit would be that our sons and our daughters would prophesy. And we considered how the Lord has fulfilled that promise from generation to generation, that in each generation the Holy Spirit raises up the sons and daughters of the church to bear witness to His truth, to prophesy, to be the proclaimers of God's glory, the proclaimers of His name throughout the world. But in addition to that, the Holy Spirit also in a special way from generation to generation raises up sons within the church to carry out the special task of bearing office in the church to engage in the work of Christ on His behalf. As you know, the Lord Jesus Christ has three offices, prophet, priest, and king. And as the exalted Christ by the Spirit of Pentecost, He administers those offices in His church by raising up men specifically called to that work. And so, your elders are called to engage in the kingly office of Christ, to rule and to govern the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The deacons are called to engage in the ministry of love and compassion, again on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we as ministers of the gospel carry out the prophetic ministry of the the Lord Jesus Christ. As I explained this morning, when the Bible talks about prophets… It means in the very first place, a person who is a communicator of God's Word, who is God's spokesman, God's representative. And so that is the calling of the ministry of the gospel, is to proclaim the Word of God in His name. And congregation, the raising up of men to that office, to those offices, is also the special work of the Holy Spirit, and we will see that tonight as we consider a passage also in light of the fact that two from among you will be installed in their respective offices. And so turn with me again to the chapter we read, Acts 20, and we will read verse 28, which will be our text, and we will deal with it, of course, also within the context And the reason we have to deal with the context is because it contains the word therefore. So we have to consider that which comes before it. So here's the text and God's word above all. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. And so in this passage, we have Paul's exhortation to shepherd the flock of Christ. So when it says here to feed the flock, right, the the intent is there to, to shepherd the flock. And we will look at three things. And again, boys and girls, those of you who can read, read along with me, and I will try to show you from the text where my points come from. So first of all, the requirement for this shepherding. And remarkably, the very first thing that Paul says, take heed therefore unto yourselves. That's number one. Secondly, the nature of this shepherding. We are to feed the church of God. We are to shepherd the church of God. All of the flock, which is what he refers to as earlier, So the requirement for this shepherding, we must begin by taking heed unto ourselves and then take heed to feed the flock as well. Secondly, the nature of this shepherding. And thirdly, also the motives for this shepherding. Why is it that we as office bearers, why is it that we must take our calling so very seriously? Well, look how the Apostle describes it. He says, we are to feed the church of God, which He has purchased with His own blood. So, the requirement for this shepherding, the nature of this shepherding, and also the motives for this shepherding. And so, congregation and, and dear brothers, you who will be installed, that word, therefore, is Significant. Because that means we need to consider the verses that come before it. And As we read together, this is the account where Paul stops on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea and has summoned the elders of Ephesus to meet him there in order to bid them farewell. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. As we read, he wanted to be there for the commemoration of Pentecost. And so the elders, they gave heed to that invitation and they met the Apostle Paul there. And Paul used that opportunity to pour out his heart to these men and to urge them with all the love of his heart to take their calling, to be the shepherds of the flock in Ephesus, to take that calling very seriously. And he does that first of all by summarizing, as it were, his own ministry among them. He had been among them for three years as, he, as we just read together. So what are the things that Paul says prior to this exhortation that we are specially considering tonight? First of all, in verse 21, he says, I have preached repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That's remarkable in and of itself. Paul is saying, ultimately, my entire ministry, my entire proclamation of the Word of God revolves around around these two essential and central and fundamental truths. My labor among you has to call you to repentance towards God, and inseparably connected to that, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, Paul was simply following the pattern that the Lord Jesus Christ himself established. Because in Mark 1 verse 15, we read about Christ beginning his public ministry, and he preached repentance and faith because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Secondly, he says in verse 26, he makes a bold statement. He says, I am pure from the blood of of all men. That's by the statement to make congregation. So Paul had the boldness, he had the confidence by the grace of God to be able to say, if anyone in Ephesus go lost, it will not be because I neglected to preach the gospel faithfully to them. It will not be because I did not call them to repentance and faith. Paul, he could say to these men, I have so labored among you, I have so sought to be faithful in preaching God's Word, I have so endeavored to lift up the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I have so endeavored to call sinners to repentance and to put their trust in the Savior that I can say before God and before you that I am pure from the blood of all men. Then the next verse he says, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. In other words, I have endeavored to be as comprehensive as I possibly could. I have endeavored to set before you all the truth of Scripture. I have set before you all the counsel of God. And in light of that, he then says, take heed therefore unto yourselves. As if to say... To these elders, my dear brothers, with all the love of my heart, I urge you to labor with the same singular focus. I urge you to labor in the congregation and to do everything in your power to make sure that the gospel continues to be faithfully preached. And that is, after all, your responsibility as a consistory. And it's especially your responsibility as elders. And so when an elder congregation, when an elder brings the minister to the pulpit and shakes his hand, that's not a matter of just courtesy. There's rich and profound symbolic meaning in all of this. Because what does that communicate? It communicates that on behalf of the congregation, the elders who are responsible for the oversight of the congregation, who are responsible for the preaching of the gospel, they open the pulpit on behalf of the elders and of the congregation. And so this pulpit does not belong to me, it doesn't belong to any other minister, the pulpit belongs to the church, and it's the, the task of the elders to carefully Guard the gates that lead to the pulpit because you are responsible as the leaders, as the elders, as the governors of the congregation, you are responsible for the preaching of the Word of God to see to it that from this pulpit, ultimately, the same message will be preached. Repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And even though you and I are by no means the apostle paul yet we too must take our office bearing that seriously that seriously that at the end we would be able to say before god lord thou knowest with all the energy of at my disposal i have endeavored we have endeavored to serve this congregation faithfully so that we would be able to say at the end of the day that we too are free from the blood of all men, and that we too have done everything possible to make sure that in this congregation, that from this pulpit, the entire counsel of God is declared. And so as Paul often did, he was actually saying to the elders of Ephesus, let me be your pattern. Let me again remind you how I have labored among you. And therefore, therefore, And then surprisingly, he says, take heed to yourselves. It's remarkable, is it not, that the very first thing he impresses upon their minds is that they need to take their own personal walk very, very seriously. Brothers, I cannot emphasize that enough. And as I say this, I'm saying it to myself. Our private life, our private walk is so very essential. It's essential for every Christian. Ultimately, it's our private walk with God. It's our closet life that fuels our public life. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, you cannot be a successful and fruitful office bearer unless you, first of all, take heed to yourself. That means that especially as office bearers, we need to take our private walk, our personal walk with Christ, very, very seriously. That means we can never allow our official ministry, our official labors, to be a substitute for our personal and private walk with God. And this exhortation is important, my friends, because there is that danger There is that danger that we can become so wrapped up in our office bearing that we forget our very own soul. And so Paul says take heed unto yourself. Make sure that you daily walk with Christ. Make sure that you abide in Christ. Make sure that you abide in his word. Make sure that you maintain your own prayer life with Christ. Because you see, that will protect us from all of the temptations, from all of the pitfalls that we will encounter in our office bearing. That's why in the parable of the ten virgins, the five wise and the five foolish virgins, what's ultimately the difference? There's a difference that is not visible to the human eye. So, there was an aspect of the wise virgins that was not visible outwardly they appeared the same outwardly their profession their public walk was the same but the foolish virgins did not have that secret supply of oil and so it is with the true Christian there is an aspect to the Christian life that is only visible to God it's not visible to the public but it's visible to God that is our secret, private walk with God, our time alone with God, our time when we, when we study His Word, when we do so prayerfully. And so, dear brothers, take heed unto yourselves. Take heed unto your private walk. Take heed to your prayer life. And then in connection with that, take heed to your public walk. That's so important, because the congregation rightfully will look at us. Rightfully, they may expect something more of us precisely because we are office bearers. And so, what a responsibility we have to walk blamelessly before the congregation. In Titus 1 verse 7, Paul writes for a bishop or an elder, must be blameless as the steward of God, as God's representative, as the one to whom God has entrusted this great responsibility. Is Paul saying that we should live sinlessly? Of course not. He himself did not live a sinless life. And yet there must be a consistency, there must be a a consistency of godliness that will be observable by the congregation as well And the Apostle Paul took this very seriously himself. He writes in 1 Corinthians 9.27, he says, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. So, Paul is saying, I, am, I engage in rigid self-discipline. I keep my body under subjection. Because he realized that as a sinner, he was just as vulnerable as any other man. We are sinners as office bearers. We're vulnerable. That's why we need to pay special attention to our walk. Because you see… As far as Satan is concerned, we are his primary targets. In the Revolutionary War, when the colonies sought to free themselves from the dominion of the British Empire, they were outnumbered by the British Army, but they had a very successful strategy. And the strategy was to pick off the generals, to pick off the leaders of of the battalions. Because when they, when they shot and killed the generals and the leader, the entire battalion fell apart and, and, and ended up in disarray. And so, they were able to successfully demoralize the British army and prevail. That's Satan's tactic. Satan knows that if he can take us down, he will have succeeded greatly. And sadly… The history of God's church is littered with such examples of office bearers who have failed, office bearers who have fallen into gross public sin and thereby bring great dishonor upon the name of Christ and bring dishonor upon the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will see later that we are not just dealing with a human society, The church we serve is the church of God. The church we serve has been purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I'll get to that later. And so therefore, given our prominence, given the very public calling that Christ gives us, we need to pay special attention because our leadership has profound impact upon the congregation. It's, I've been around long enough in church life to know that the spirituality of a congregation rises to the level of the spirituality of their office bearers. That's true. Somehow people know we are the spiritual leaders. Somehow people take their cue from us. And so if we walk carelessly, they will walk carelessly. If we are inconsistent, they will be inconsistent. What a calling we have. What an extraordinary calling we have. And you know, every generation has that responsibility. Because it has been rightly said, it's not original with me, that the church is always one generation away from apostasy. It takes one generation for a church to go astray. I once heard a professor give a lecture on church history, and he made this statement. He said, church history is a history of decline. And it's true. When you you study church history, you see time and again that things start off well, and then comes that subtle decline. Slowly but surely, the church declines. The church declines. Seminaries that start off well, they decline and they decline. It's even true for the individual believer that we are always prone towards decline. And if it were not for the fact that the Holy Spirit, of whom we spoke this morning, who was poured out upon all flesh, if he himself did not sustain the church, if he himself time and again did not revive his own work, there would be no church of Jesus Christ. If it were not for the ongoing ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ through His Spirit, the church of Jesus Christ would have self-destructed long ago. But sadly, what do we observe in that history of decline when institutions, churches, congregations, which once were faithful to the Word of God and which then declined beyond recognition… There's always one generation of leadership that drops the ball. There's one generation that begins to turn the tide. And and it doesn't all happen all at once. It can be ever so subtle. And of course, that's Satan's, Satan's method, is to bring that about. Remember my dad telling me when he served in the city of Scheveningen, Holland, that was a fishing village, that an old fisherman told me, he said, the captain, the cleverest captain, is able to change the course of the ship without the people on shore noticing it. That's Satan's tactic. And so, dear brothers, that's why we as ministers, you as office bearers, we have such an extraordinary responsibility. God forbid that our generation would drop the ball, that proverbial ball, because what church history shows, that once the ball is dropped, the ball keeps rolling, and it keeps rolling. So the requirement is to take heed to ourselves ourselves. To take heed to our walk. And then, by extension, also to take heed to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made us overseers. I want you to notice the broad scope of this exhortation. He says, he doesn't just say to, to take care of the flock, no, he says we must take care of all the flock. Now, as any shepherd in Israel would be able to tell you, is that all of his sheep had their own personality. A shepherd in Israel was intimately acquainted with his sheep. He knew them by name. They all knew his voice. Some were very compliant sheep. Some were difficult sheep, sheep that all were ready to stray. But as a shepherd, he was committed to care for all of his sheep, for every member of his flock. Every member of his flock was precious. A shepherd in Israel was willing to lay down his life for every single sheep in the flock, for the nice ones and for the not-so-nice ones, for the compliant ones and for the difficult ones. And so must we labor as office bearers. We are to minister to all the flock. So let me just give you a few passages from Scripture that emphasize, that simply communicate that this is what Paul understood himself. Philippians 1 verse 1, he writes to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are Philippine. All of them. and, And in chapter 4 verse 21, he says, salute every saint in Christ Jesus. In First Thessalonians 5:27, he says, "I charge you, by the Lord Jesus, that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren." And then earlier in that chapter, in verse 14, he says, "Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them, why don't we, let's open our Bibles. I want you to see that verse yourself. Open your Bibles to First Thessalonians 5 verse 14. because this really underscores what the Apostle is saying here in this exhortation. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 14. He says, now I exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. By the way, brothers, faithful office-bearing means that we must warn at times. That's the more difficult aspect of our work. But if we do it, Let's do it the way Paul did it. Paul said, I warned you with tears. In other words, when he warned, he did not warn harshly, judgmentally, he warned with tears. He says, Warn them that are unruly, the difficult ones. Comfort the feeble minded, those who are weak, those who lack assurance, who who kind of stumble along. Support the weak. And be patient toward all men. That's what Paul means here. Take heed to all of the flock. And so make sure, brothers, that all the members of your flock receive your attention, that you minister to all the members of the flock, irrespective of their status, irrespective of their personality. They are all entrusted to your care all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers, and he says, to feed the church of God. Remarkable, is it not, how he describes the congregation of Ephesus? He says, it is the church of God. And grammatically, in Greek, it emphasizes, it is the church of that belongs to God, it is the church that is owned by God. That church is His. We don't serve our church. We're called to serve His church. That church belongs to Him. The church, the existence of the church today in the 21st century is a result of of His work. There would be no church if it weren't for His work. That church, that community of believers around the world, that church has its origin in the heart of a triune God. The existence of that church is the outworking of God's eternal sovereign good pleasure. The good pleasure of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so the existence of that church from the very beginning of Scripture until the very end of those last days of which we spoke this morning is the result of the work of a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are actively engaged in sustaining that church, in preserving that church, in reviving that church. So, brothers, we are called to serve His church. We need to remember that. Because that defines, immediately defines, the very nature of our work. And the church, really, is a wonder. It's a living wonder. It is the greatest wonder of the world. There is no human organization... There is no political entity in the history of the world that has survived as long as the church has. It's remarkable when we consider what Satan has undertaken throughout history to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, to know that that community of believers continues to exist in our generation, that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has reached our generation, that we see in our generation that sons and daughters are prophesying. That's the result of the amazing work of a triune God. That's why the Greek word ekklesia, which is the word that's used here, is such a remarkable word. Ekklesia is a combination of two words, and it literally means called out of. And That's it because the church consists of sinners who, by nature, are not part of that community. We are all born and conceived in sin. But what does God do throughout history? He sovereignly calls sinners out of the community of perishing sinners, and He brings them into that special community which we call the church. Oh, the church truly is the masterpiece of God. Paul says we are His workmanship. And it's the word in Greek from which the word poem is derived. In the Greek culture, a poem was the ultimate expression of human intelligence. If you were able to produce a, a beautiful poem, that was a very impressive achievement. And Paul is saying the church is God's poem. It is God's workmanship. It is God's masterpiece. That's why Paul begins his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. He writes to this church, and you know, you know the letter to the Corinthians. You know what kind of a congregation that was. You know all of the problems there were in that congregation. You talk about a flawed church, you talk about a flawed congregation. The congregation of Corinth was such a congregation. And yet, how does he begin his letter? He says, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth. Remarkable, is it not? It's like a farmer referring to his field. He said, this is a wheat field. Even though there are all kinds of weeds going throughout that field, he doesn't refer to that field according to the weeds that are in it, but according to the wheat that's in the field. The church of God 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, Paul writes this. He refers to the church as the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And when we recognize that, we realize the responsibility that is ours, that is yours, to shepherd His church, because this congregation is also a manifestation of that church. This congregation also belongs to the one holy universal church, the faith of which we confessed earlier. And so what, is, what are we to do? What does that feeding of the church of God consist of? I need to be brief here for time's sake. But the, the idea of feeding here is the idea of, of shepherding. Shepherding the flock. Shepherd the church of God. And so a shepherd had three responsibilities. First of all, to make sure his flock was properly fed. Secondly, that his flock was properly guided and directed. His rod and his staff, that's what what David talks about in Psalm 23. And thirdly, also to protect the flock. Because a shepherd knew He could never let up for one moment. There were always animals of prey that would be shadowing his flock, looking for a straying sheep, looking to pounce and to find a weak spot. And so a good shepherd had to keep an eye on all of his sheep to make sure that they were were safe and they were protected. Brothers, that's your and my calling. That's our calling. First of all, to make sure that this flock is fed properly. That's especially the task of the elders. That's why your task is a weighty one. You have the oversight over the ministry of the gospel. I heard a minister once say to his elders, he says, you have to know more than your minister. He said it kind of tongue-in-cheek, but he says, you have to know more than your minister because you have to be able to determine whether what I'm saying is sound and according to the Scriptures. So, that's your responsibility to make sure that the sheep are fed with healthy biblical substance, healthy food. Jeremiah 3, verse 15, God actually promises that He will provide such shepherds for His church. He says, "...and I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding." Secondly, to direct the flock, because sheep are very foolish creatures. Sheep cannot be left alone. Sheep cannot be left to themselves. Sheep will always go astray. And so, a shepherd has to keep the flock together. He has to direct and guide the flock, even using the shepherd dogs to go after the stragglers and to bring them back to the flock and to protect the flock, to guard her. I'm going to say about that a little bit more in just a moment, and we need to move on to the motives for this shepherding. It's too bad we're running out of time, but I think I have already implied a, a number of things. Three things, very quickly. First of all, we are appointed to be overseers, overseers, like superintendents, to oversee the congregation to keep an eye on the congregation. Secondly, to remember that that church of God was purchased with His own blood. That's a remarkable statement. There's so much theology in just that statement alone, congregation, that an entire sermon could be devoted just to these words, the church of God, which He has purchased with His own blood. And thirdly, from the verses that following to know that this flock entrusted to your care is always in danger of attack from within or from without. First of all, we have been made overseers. By whom? By the Holy Ghost. So, the very fact that you were elected and that your hearts were inclined to give yourself is the work of the Holy Spirit. So, the Holy Spirit is the one who gives the church its office-bearers. The Holy Spirit is the one who raises up men and equips them to engage in the work of office-bearing. And so, we see that when in every generation men arise who evidently have the gifts and the grace to engage in that, that is evidence of the ongoing and uninterrupted ministry of the Holy Spirit. That is the work of the Spirit of Pentecost. And brothers, that is a daunting reality, but also a very encouraging reality. Because when the Holy Spirit separates us, and when He establishes us as overseers over the church, that means He will also equip us to do what He calls us to do. And that's the encouragement. Faithful is He that calleth, the apostle says elsewhere, who will also do it. When God calls us to a task, He will also give us the grace to perform that task. That's why when priests in the Old Testament would begin their ministry, first of all, they had to be washed and had to be cleansed to remind them that they were unfit themselves, they were impure themselves. They needed to be washed and cleansed, but also they would be anointed with oil, symbolic of the Holy Spirit, to remind them that the Spirit of God would enable them to do what He called them to do. And so is the work of the Holy Ghost What we are witnessing today is the work of the Holy Ghost in this congregation, giving you two men again who are willing to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in your midst. And, brothers, since it's the Holy Ghost who has appointed you to this task, it's very clear what your task is. As I said this morning, what is the work of the Holy Spirit? Is to glorify Christ, to take out of Him and to show it unto us. That's our work as office bearers, is to make sure that Christ is exalted, Christ is lifted up, that Christ has the preeminence in the preaching, in your house visitation, in everything you do. It must all be focused on Christ, because only then are we doing the Holy Spirit's work, That's his work. That's what defines his ministry. Is to magnify Christ. That's why in Ephesians 4, verse 11 through 13, the apostle writes, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, here it comes, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come In the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure and of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then, of course, this astonishing statement, purchased with his own blood. What a clear testimony that Paul wholeheartedly believed in the divinity of Christ. How can God shed blood? God cannot shed blood. He's often obviously referring here to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God and man in one person, Emmanuel, God with us. And it's Emmanuel who in His perfect humanity shed His precious blood and thereby purchased the church. If there's anything that defines your or my responsibility, it's this. The church we are serving is a church that has been purchased with blood, the blood of God's Son, that blood which is of infinite value. That's why one commentator writes, that makes that the value of the church exceeds the value of the universe, because the church has been purchased with the blood of Christ. That also implies, of course, that the church is made up of sinners. For why else would the blood of Christ have to be shed in order to purchase that church? His blood had to be shed because the church is made up of sinners, of redeemed sinners. But nevertheless, always remember, the people we are dealing with, the congregation we are serving, belongs to that one holy Catholic church that has been purchased with the blood of Christ. What a task, what a responsibility to be called to shepherd the blood bought bride of Christ. And so Peter says, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. And finally, considering the dangers. I've already implied that so I can be very brief. Just look at your Bibles and read what Paul says right after our text. He says, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Paul had been around long enough, he knew the situation well enough, to know that that is always a danger that is lurking. And that's why we have to be watchful. Look at verse 31, another, therefore. Therefore, he says, watch, be on guard, be aware that the church of Jesus Christ is always under attack by a three-headed enemy, Satan, the world, and our own wretched and corrupt flesh. And what's really unsettling is that Paul is saying it will arise from within you. Church history tells that the devil does both. He attacks from the outside through persecution, but also from the inside by corrupting the church from the inside. The devil has no scruples. He doesn't care how he destroys the church of Jesus Christ. And therefore, brothers, we need to watch and remember, he says, that by the space of three years, I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. What a task is ours. What a task to which we are called. And I had no time to make the application, but I just want to say one thing. It seems at congregation, it seems that this whole message was focused on your office bearers, in a sense it was, because you too need to understand What's at stake here? You need to understand what's happening here on the day of Pentecost to realize this is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, but what applies to office bearers really applies to parents as well. As parents, we are office bearers at home, especially as fathers. We are called to be prophets, priests, and kings in our families. So we need to take that seriously as well, also at our personal level. And that's why, congregation, you need to pray for these men. You need to pray for these brothers every day that God will enable them to take heed unto themselves and to feed all the the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made them overseers so that they may feed, that they may shepherd this church, this flock, which He has purchased with His own blood. And then He ends with this word of encouragement, and that's what I want to end with now. It says, and now, brethren, I commend you to God, the God to whom the church belongs, the God who purchased that church with His blood through His Son, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Amen.